turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We are, we are going to be uh, basically looking again at uh, 8 verses 4 through 11, and then maybe a little bit, a little bit more as we get toward the end. Um, the, what, what I hope to accomplish today is to look at, at this section, not in the, exactly the same way that we looked at it before, but to look at it at how this, um, this section is dealing with something that Paul, a couple of other sections in chapter two, that Paul has brought up and he is now returning to and bringing them, wrapping them up in, in his conclusion. Uh, essentially how, the, how what has been accomplished through Jesus's death and resurrection is now put into effect through the spirit in the lives of believers and how justification, which we're going to come back to, justification, how we, we have been declared in the covenant, in the right, um, has, is operating on the basis of faith at the moment. But what the Spirit is doing is, is forming that bridge between the life of faith and the reality to come. So that in the end, when, when everyone gives an account of the deeds done in the body, the, the justification by faith becomes justification based on the whole life lived in the spirit. So this is all by the spirit. So don't misunderstand me. Don't understand me to be saying that there's something that we accomplish apart from the spirit. What Paul does is he takes chapter two, where we shall, um, everyone shall give an account of the deeds done in the body, whether good or bad. Um, he says, we shall all, um, he's talking about Jew and Gentile. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and they will give an account. Right? How does that square with justification by faith? Aren't we justified by faith? And the answer is yes. The way that it squares with justification by faith is the answer to that is the spirit. The spirit makes active justification by faith, enabling and empowering the holiness uh, that is required, uh, the love of God that is required for one to be a faithful fulfiller of the law, let's say. So uh, I'm going to try to accomplish that today. And um, as we as we look at this, I want to go ahead and go ahead and open your stick your finger in chapter two, because we're going to get to we're going to come to chapter two as we discuss uh, this section and hopefully we can see how he introduces something there and then comes back and fills in, fills in the space that is that he created. Let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for this uh, good time that you've given us to uh, think on your word. We pray, Father, that through the, through the preaching of your word, through the understanding that comes from it, that we might be enabled, uh, that your spirit might take these words and help us, Father, to live uh, victorious lives as we walk in the spirit and as we become fulfillers of the law and as we as we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Father, help uh, help me to make these things as clear as possible and uh, may they be transformative in all of our minds and and help us to um, to live out the, the death and resurrection of the Messiah. 
We pray, Father, your spirit would be uh, among us today, be at work, give us ears to hear what the spirit says. In Jesus' name. In 8, chapter 4, uh, chap- um, chapter four, chapter 8, verse 4, he begin, he, I'm going to summarize this. So I'm going to begin there, and then we're going to focus mostly on 8, 5 through 11. So he says in verse 4, so that the righteous goal of the law. So he has just said that what the law could not do, weak as it was in because of the flesh, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that's verse three. And then he says, so that the righteous goal of the law. And remember last week, we discussed what that goal of the law is. It's a difficult word. Some of your Bibles may read the righteous requirement of the law. Uh, most of them do. Uh, there's a question about exactly what it means, but it seems to me to be related to what he says in chapter seven, that the law was unto life he says it, it, it intended to give life it wanted to give life but it was unable to not because there was some kind of deficiency in it but because of the flesh of israel the flesh of israel prevented the law from bringing about life okay so he says so that the righteous goal of the law that is life might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit Verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh, think about or mind the things of the flesh. The ones who are according to the spirit, think about the things of the spirit. For the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is life and peace. Therefore, the mind of the flesh is enmity against God. For the law of God, it does not submit to, nor is it able. And the ones who are in the flesh are unable to please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone doesn't have the spirit of the Messiah, this one is not of the Messiah. But if the Messiah is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, the one who raised Jesus from the the dead or the Messiah from the dead will give life also to your mortal bodies through the dwelling of his spirit in you. Now, these are some really dense verses. I mean, like anytime you read these, like, what do we make of these? How do you explain it? It's like you kind of understand what he's getting at, but how do you how do you really explain what he's what he's talking about in in terms that actually are that allow you to do something with them how do these things get legs we saw a couple of weeks ago that god has now accomplished through the messiah's cross and resurrection what the law had intended but was unable to give to accomplish what was accomplished was in a word life resurrection and you'll notice just kind of as you read these, as you read chapter eight, when Paul says life, he means resurrection. And when he says resurrection, he means life. And so think of that, think of it in those terms, because I think when we, myself included, the first instinct when I read the word life is just to think about like what animates us, life. But Paul has something very specific in mind 
uh, or maybe you should say even more broad in mind than just life that we live, what animates us as humans. He means resurrection. And the reason that he does is, is that he has in mind this whole, it's, it's like a whole story, this whole backstory of what has happened in humanity. Humanity is in Adam. That's his controlling story. Humanity is in Adam. What, is, what happened to Adam when he sinned? Death, right? He's excluded from the garden, and that is called death. And so what is it that humanity needs? If you're excluded and that is death, what you need is to return, which is resurrection. You need life. And so this is kind of his controlling story. So when he says life, he means resurrection. Uh, he may mean some nuance of that, but always keep that in mind as you're reading Paul, especially here in, in chapter 8. What was accomplished through the death and resurrection of the Messiah was life. Resurrection of Messiah and his people. And this is what we're going to see is, is brought into effect through the Spirit. It's not just resurrection of the Messiah that is accomplished by the Spirit, but the Spirit has raised us from the dead as well. Resurrection in which we participate in the present, in, participate in, in the present, and also we anticipate in the future. There's a, there's a way of saying you're living in life now, you're living in eternal life, the resurrection life, and it is coming in the future. And that's what Paul intends to say uh, throughout this chapter, but really throughout the, the book. He accomplished resurrection life through the death of, of his son as the sin offering, whereby sin was lured onto Jesus and condemned in Jesus's flesh. Because sin by its very nature brings death, so Jesus in his death brought resurrection by his covenant faithfulness, his righteous obedience to the divine plan for Israel and the nations. This can be put in two ways, and Paul gets it both, at both of them here. Verse 3, God condemns sin in the flesh. And I would understand this as being, it doesn't say this explicitly, but it seems to me to, that as a sin offering, he condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus. And he gave life through his resurrection. So there's death and life in what has happened in Jesus. Now, what's, what's going to happen with this? What he's going to do is he's going to take that death and life of the Messiah and he's going to map it on to us. So when, when Paul, let's say he comes to Corinth and he talks to them about what his ministry is. He says, look, guys, I was shipwrecked. I was beaten. He's not saying this to boast about himself, but he's saying, watch what's happening when I am faithful to what God has given me to do. I die. You're resurrected. In other words, the benefits that come from what's happening to me result in life from the dead for you. So he sees death and resurrection not as just some abstract concept, but as something that can be lived in round, round the clock, essentially, right? You are in the process of dying and raising, and God is doing this. And sometimes you're in the process of dying so that others might raise. And sometimes you're being raised by the death, the sacrifice of others. So it becomes this paradigmatic way of talking about existence. You, you exist, I exist within the cross and resurrection of the Messiah. I think that's what he's, what he's getting at here. He condemns sin in the flesh 
So the condemnation of sin in the flesh of Jesus resulted in life from the dead. So that the righteous goal of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The problem, as we saw, was that the law was unable to deal with sin in the flesh of Israel. That part of people, so the flesh is that part of people that is subjected to corruption. It's, it's possible for something in mankind to be corrupted by sin, to be ruled over by it. That's what he's calling the flesh. Now, there's often this, this connection between the flesh and the body. They're not the same exactly. The body is never described as being bad, but it is within that body that the flesh lives. So it's a, it's a kind of a, a very difficult for him to, or for us to separate these two, but he seems to be able to do it. So uh, in Paul, that part of humans that is subject to the principle of the law of sin and death, that's what the flesh is. That part of humans that is subject to the, the principle of sin that leads to death. That's what the flesh is. And that's what Jesus is said to have dealt with on the cross in his own flesh. Now, note how Paul uses a kind of shorthand. And this is actually part of the difficulty of reading Paul. He will say something like the law of sin and death. And by that, he means the law or the principle that means that sin brings about death so he he often is using the shorthand and we have to figure out what he's talking about it is the flesh not the body though the body is where it resides which is what jesus dealt with in his death and resurrection and which will be dealt with fully and finally in the resurrected body this is why this is why in first corinthians 15 paul says that the that the flesh flesh and blood will not inherit eternal life right he can't the flesh has to die so that the new body, the new resurrected body, can then inhabit life, right? can, be, can be filled with the Spirit, fully and finally animated by the Spirit of God. But it is sin in the flesh that had to be defeated and condemned, judged and rendered null, and more importantly, powerless in those who have faith in the Messiah. Now, what, I would like to, uh, what I'd like for us to see this morning is the way that the Spirit is the one who is responsible for taking the sin offering of Jesus, his substitutionary atonement, and making it real in the lives of those who have faith in Jesus. This is surprisingly, and by, by this I mean the Spirit, and what the Spirit does is surprisingly emphasized very little in the Scripture as a whole. But it is of vital importance for Paul, and indeed all of the New Testament authors. It's likely not emphasized because Jesus is the means by which the Father is glorified. He is the visible representation of God himself and is himself to be the focus of the saving purposes of God to mankind and also to the powers. So Jesus is standing as a sign to the powers that death has been defeated, that their power has been stripped from them, and those who are in him may conquer but when Paul devotes so much time to the Spirit, as he does here in chapter 8, we should pay close attention to what he is saying. It is the Spirit who makes active the death and resurrection of Jesus, imparting life to believers. Life, as I mentioned, is resurrection life. 
the same kind and quality of life that Jesus had in his life and has in his resurrection. It is the very life that Jesus had and have since the spirit is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, he says here in this passage. Thus, we could summarize what Paul is arguing here. He condemns sin in the flesh, both in Jesus's flesh and in ours, and the giving of the spirit was to impart life to those who believe in him, both to, well, and to Jesus himself. These two things Paul is setting forth as the means through which God has begun the renewal of God's new humanity and ultimately the renewal of all creation, which we're going to be again looking at next week. These two things then sum up the new or the renewed covenant. So I'm transitioning here. I haven't talked about the new covenant, but to talk about what's happening in Jesus is to talk about or to sum up what has happened in the renewal of the covenant with Israel or the covenant with Abraham, I should say. Since the new covenant was always the hope of Israel and through Israel, the hope of the entire world. Recall that Abraham and the covenant with him was to be the answer to Adam's disobedience to the commandment. As I mentioned briefly last week, all of this accomplishment of Jesus must be viewed in terms of the fulfillment of the covenant made with Abraham. And the spirit's role in this covenant fulfillment is for Paul central, though not the primary focus, in bringing about Jesus's covenant fulfillment and therefore ours. In other words, the spirit is the means by which all of this is accomplished, both in Jesus and in us. And that's a very important point. We don't think of, we think of Jesus accomplishing something and then the spirit kind of being separate. What, what he's saying here in chapter eight is that it's the spirit of the Messiah. And it's the spirit of the Messiah that if you have the spirit of the Messiah, you belong to him and he will raise you from the dead as well. This is the main focus for us today, since as we have seen uh, the, I should say, um, now, in other, uh, so the spirit is the means by which all of this is accomplished, both in Jesus and in us. The, one of the difficulties when we begin to talk about the spirit is that we have to begin then to talk about the law. Paul will, Paul's actually talking about both of these things simultaneously. And so we, we have to explore just what it is or how it is that the spirit is related in some way to what Paul is talking about, about the law. So let's explore that for just a bit. What, what I think is happening in, in an overall sense within this passage is that Paul views what is happening in Jesus as the renewal of the covenant. And in the renewal of the covenant comes this redefinition of what it means to fulfill the law or to keep the law, right? He said, he said earlier uh, that the right, the dikaioma, the righteous goal of the law is fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What does that mean? He seems to be saying that we keep the law in some sense, right? If you have the spirit, you keep the law. What does that mean, Paul? We don't even, most of us don't, we don't think about the law. What does that mean? So what I think is happening here is that he's, he's saying in light of Jesus and what he's accomplished, there's a redefinition of what it means to keep the law. This is the main focus of this passage. Since as we have seen, the law plays two important roles for Israel. 
in some sense, <clears throat> the law stands in the way of God's purposes, but it also plays a large a part in those larger purposes. It stood against Israel's flesh, constantly condemning her, while at the same time, it was guarding her until the coming of the Messiah. These two things, how do these two things work? And, and how do they somehow come to a climax in Jesus? And this seems to be what he's saying. And then in us, how, how, does, how do we then become keepers of the law? One of the great mysteries of the law, and something that often keeps uh, theologians up at night, is whether and how the law is applicable to us. Like, what does it mean for us to keep the law? And I think in this passage, we'll find what, what Paul thinks about that. It must be viewed within a covenantal framework. That's my main contention. Paul says things like the doers of the law. So in chapter two, he says, the doers of the law are the ones who will be justified. And other things like, for all have sinned, uh, with the, all who sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be, of the law will be justified. And then again, 1 Corinthians 7, 19, he says something like, circumcision is nothing, uncircumcision is nothing, but what matters is keeping the commandments of God. And you're like, what do you mean, Paul? I thought believing in the Messiah was all that matters. And here he says, keeping the commandments of God is really all that matters. Much of the problem that we have as, as Gentiles is that we often don't understand the language of first century Judaism. And this is very much true about how they viewed the law. The Jew didn't simply view the law as some kind of ladder they were to climb in order to achieve life or resurrection. It was not some type of work your way to heaven scheme. The law was a covenantal charter under which Israel was bound by agreement, not as a way to get into the covenant. Like, how did you get into the covenant? You're born into the covenant. Right? You're in the covenant. And, and so it is the sign by which it might be known that a person is in the covenant in the present time in anticipation of the last day. So in other words, you have the same thing going on within first century Judaism, a similar thing, as we have in Paul. Paul is not leaving behind his, his eschatology of something's uh, happening now. So you're, you're in the covenant and you have the signs of the covenant right now, but you're going to be justified in the last day. You're gonna stand before God and give an account of the deeds done in the bodies. He hasn't, he hasn't left that behind. Um, it's not some type of work your way to heaven scheme. What he's, what he's getting at is that if you keep the law, let's say, first of all, if you are circumcised, and then if you keep the law, you are showing in the present that you will indeed be vindicated by God in the future resurrection. Think about um, John, John 10, John 10 or 11, where, where Mary... Um, uh, Martha says to Jesus about Lazarus, I know he'll be raised in the resurrection, right? I know he's going to live again in the resurrection. Lazarus has died, and he, he says to Martha, do you believe he can live? She said, yes, I believe he can live in the resurrection, right? He's going to be raised from the dead in the future. He says, no, not just in the future, but in the present as well. And this is that, that he is going to be resurrected in the present, 
not just literally, but he's going to be given life in the present in anticipation of the future resurrection. And that is, that's what's going on with them in terms of what, what's happening in the present. I keep the law, right? I'm a law keeper. That means that in the future, God is going to vindicate me. And that's what's going on with Paul. As we ourselves might say, what, one doesn't simply do, do good deeds to get to the resurrection, right? But to show who we are as God's people. We have the same type of framework that it's not really that we, we go about doing good because we're, we're after something, right? We're going to get something in the future. No, we do it because we, who we are, right? We, we've been resurrected in the present. One might ask if that is the case. So if Israel is operating within this, this same framework, law keepers in the present show that they're going to inherit the age to come. Paul says this is what's happening with believers as well. What then, what then is going on? How does this make us to differ th uh, from the first century Jew? Might that be their way and we have ours? What I think, what I think Paul uh, would, would say is that, look, Christianity is not Judaism for Gentiles. It's not you have your way and, and the Jews have their way. We know this is wrong because as we've seen, God is joining Jew and Gentile into one body in the Messiah. So if we say, hey, Israel is keeping the law in order to show that they're going to be part of the age to come, it doesn't make that equivalent to what we're saying about what Jesus is accomplishing in the Messiah. To say that God has different programs for Jews and Gentiles is to deny the oneness of God and his goal of saving the whole world, both Jew and Gentile, through his Messiah. Through creating one family, one body, consisting Jew and Gentile, he is, he is saving the world. What has changed for both Jew and Gentiles in regards to the covenant with the, with the arrival of Israel's Messiah is that the covenant itself, the very covenant of it, um, that was made with Israel, is renewed for Israel so that she could then return from exile through her Messiah. And in his arrival, the sign of being in the covenant, of having covenant membership and identity, was reworked around Jesus, the one through whom the covenant was fulfilled. A Jew, after Jesus' transformational coming, after his one righteous act, could only get into the covenant, into the renewed covenant, by believing in Jesus, her Messiah. And this is precisely what Paul means when he says that Messiah is the end of the law. He's the telos. He's the, the goal, the climax, you might say, of the law to all who believe. He is the substance to which the law testified. Thus, there's a, a reorientation for the Jew, whereby when he turns to the Messiah as the one in whom the scriptures find their conclusion, he is finding life. He is becoming a true law keeper because the law itself had pointed to it. I'm sorry, that was very convoluted. I know it was, and I feel it too. Here's what I'm getting at. The, the, covenant, the covenant that was made with Israel, part of that covenant was that when it comes, 
the law is going to be written on the heart of Israel, and she is going to obey her God. Unlike what she was doing before, when she was suffering under the death of sin, the, the death that sin brought, sent her, it sent her into exile. When God renewed the covenant, he also transformed the heart of those who believe in Jesus. The law then was, it's standing there saying to Israel before the Messiah, and even after the Messiah, if they don't believe in him, you're condemned, you're condemned, you're condemned because of sin in the flesh of the Messiah. But once that comes, the law can be, I don't want to say put out of the way, but it is kind of put out of the way. It's fulfilled in the Messiah himself. And that then reorients everything around Jesus himself, not the Torah anymore. That's, that's the main point. With the arrival of the Messiah and his sin-bearing act, he brought in the new covenant. And through the Spirit, he has brought it into effect. Through the Spirit, the new covenant can do what it promised. Give life and fulfill the covenant. It can create a circumcised people, a newly circumcised people. And this, for Paul, means that they will keep the law. Those who are in the Messiah will keep the law. The new covenant brings about a new law keeping, a redefinition of and ultimate fulfillment of the commandment to love the Lord your God. Now, note how closely these concepts of circumcision and law keeping are kept in both Deuteronomy, from which Paul is drawing, and also here in Romans. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he says, Moreover, the Lord your God, and this is the time when he, Israel returns from exile, he will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Hear that word. When you hear Paul say live, he means it just like it mean, what it means in 30, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. He's going to give you resurrection. He's going to give you life. And he's going, to, he's going to do this by circumcising your heart. And then two verses later, and you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. You hear it? So to love the Lord your God and to keep his commandments are the same thing. And this is going to happen with the circumcision that happens, but that, that it's brought about by the spirit of God. That's the main point. Here we have it. circumcised heart leads to obeying and observing all his commandments. So also in Romans 2, 25 through 29, for indeed circumcision, he says, is of value if you practice the law. But if you're a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, Will not, will not he judge you, the Jew, who through the letter and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart. Now here it is, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. There he says it kind of in, in really 
tight, compact form, and this is what he's coming to in chapter 8. The uncircumcised man, he says, who keeps the law somehow, he doesn't say how this is going to happen. Here in chapter 8, he's going to describe how an uncircumcised person keeps the law. The uncircumcised man who keeps the law, his uncircumcision becomes circumcision. And the circumcised man who doesn't keep the law, his circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And these are, respectively, those who are in the Messiah. These are the people who are circumcised in the heart. They have the true circumcision. They have his spirit. And those who are not in the Messiah and do not have his spirit, these are the true uncircumcision. Okay? So this is what he's, I think he's attempting to make this plain, probably even better than I did there. Of He's attempting to make this plain in chapter 8, that what has happened, this circumcision that comes about in the Messiah is accomplished by the Spirit. He, the uncircumcised who are, who are the circumcised in chapter 2 are the of the spirit people in Romans 8. And the circumcised who don't keep the law are the not of the spirit people in Romans 8. That's what he's getting at. Read these. Go back and read these. Chapter 2 and chapter 8 in light of each other. What Paul has done early in Romans is to introduce a topic. He'll often do this. He will say a few words about it, summarize it maybe, then move on only to come back to it later in the argument. It makes his letters very difficult, but he's always doing this. He does this twice, actually, in Romans. He does it more than this, but in relation to this topic. In Romans 2, 12 through 15, we first hear about these Gentiles who keep the law. All who sinned without the law will perish without the law. And then he says, verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto them, to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately, alternately accusing or else defending them. This passage has led many to think that he's talking about some good random people that have never heard the gospel and they just kind of, they're Gentiles, they keep the law. God's going to somehow, apart from the Messiah, reckon, reckon them as being in the covenant. I don't think so. It's not what he's doing. What Paul will do is he introduces this, this group of people, let's say, who are Gentiles, but they keep the law. Who is he talking about? He's talking, we find out in chapter 8, these are people who have believed in the Messiah and have the Spirit of God. These are the ones who are Gentile law keepers. They're not random people. They are new covenant Gentile believers like the ones to whom he is writing. What he has done in a rather obscure way is to introduce a category of law-keeping Gentiles who will, in that day, chapter 2, at the final judgment, be judged as those in whom the righteous goal of the law is fulfilled. But it's only in Romans 8 that we find out the means by which this occurs and what it means in practicality. And what Paul is getting at is this. Those who have the Spirit are those in whom the righteous goal of the law is fulfilled, life. These, we now find out in chapter 8, are in the new covenant. They're justified, and there is no condemnation for them in Christ Jesus in the present. 
What's interesting in, in Romans is that he goes from chapter two talking about justification in the last day. And then in chapter eight, he talks about what's happening in the present. There's no condemnation in the present for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are the same people who through who, though uncircumcised, are actually circumcised through the work of the spirit. It is an inward circumcision, not outward in the flesh, as he just said. He said there in Romans 2, he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit. That's what he's getting at. Same thing that he's talking about in eight. The circumcision of the heart by the spirit by which someone becomes a law keeper. It's an inward circumcision, not outward in the flesh. These are the in secret Jews who are circumcised in the heart by the spirit and not the letter. A verse, it is, um, it is, he introduces it by way of this little terse statement, and then he comes back to it in chapter 8 and elaborates on it. Now, what do these according to the spirit people do? I'm going to wrap this up. I know it's getting, I'm long-winded today, sorry. Uh, what do these according to the spirit people do? What is their law keeping? What, what in practicality does this look like? How is it? that the righteous goal of the law is fulfilled in them? The answer to that is through the Spirit's work, taking their justification by faith and giving it legs, so that in that day, those who have and obey the Spirit may be justified when God will repay each one according to his works. How is this expressed? This is expressed by a very general statement that those who mind the things of the spirit and not the things of the flesh these are the ones who are the spirit people the of the spirit people these are the the law keepers for those who are according to the flesh he says in verse five they think about the things of the flesh the ones who are according to the spirit they think about the things of the spirit the mind of the flesh is death but the mind of the spirit is life and peace what are the things of the spirit which we are to think about, or in other words, what is this new, what does this new law keeping look like? He doesn't say here exactly what this minding the spirit looks like. And I think it's intentional. One might be tempted to draw up lists of commandments to do and not to do. But if we were to do that, we would be in effect rebuilding the law, living in that state of immaturity, in which we were waiting for adulthood. For Paul, when the fullness comes, the spirit is poured out upon those who believe and the spirit becomes the arbiter of thought and thus of right action. This doesn't mean that we somehow become lawless when we receive the spirit. Quite the opposite, in fact. We operate under a different law, what he calls the law of the spirit of life. The law of the spirit, which leads to life. And under this spirit, we please God, he says. We are led by the spirit. We think thoughts after the spirit and in accordance with the spirit. And we ultimately obtain life, resurrection. Paul said, says, it is our debt that we live after the spirit, which means we are indebted to put to death the deeds of the body that obey the flesh, 
and we're to do this by the Spirit. The Spirit, as we are yielded to Him, gives life. For the Spirit <clears throat> to do this is essentially to give us resurrection ahead of the resurrection and in anticipation of the resurrection to which we will return next week. Our desire for limits, and this is, the, this is part of the application of this passage, our desire for limits, do this, don't do this, however instinctual, is not healthy nor mature. Notice how Paul rarely says, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do that. He doesn't do that. Very seldom will you ever hear Paul say, don't do this, don't eat this, don't drink this. Uh, that's not the way he operates. We'll see in chapter 14. That's not what he does. Okay? There's a reason for that. Because under the spirit of life, there's a new way of law keeping. And this is activated. It's, it's enabled through the spirit. And he, he just will not make up new laws. He's often saying things like, be this kind of spirit. Or later in this letter, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Is that a command? Yes, it's a command, but it's a spirit command, right? Be transformed. What he seeks is a transformation of the thinking brought about by the spirit through faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Not just through raw knowledge. We're not talking about sitting down with a systematic theology book, but through the transforming truth uh, brought about by the spirit, the truth of the Messiah's death and resurrection. In other words, the knowledge of Messiah's crucifixion and resurrection mingled with the Spirit's working yields a life that looks like the crucifixion and resurrection. And it is this that we are to put on, he says, to reckon to ourselves, reckon to yourselves the death and resurrection of Christ. This is why he says in chapter six, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ Having been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves dead to sin. Right? That's the commandment of the Spirit. Reckon to yourself death, death to sin, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust. But as he's going to say in chapter eight, but if you by the spirit put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, right? That's the commandment. And that's the way our life is supposed to work. And this is the way that the new covenant is fulfilled. And that's the main point. We often come at these things like, like there's no such thing as a covenant, but the very promise of the covenant was a circumcised heart so that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind, and your strength. And that is the new law keeping. And this is accomplished by the death and resurrection of Christ. It is another way of saying the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These things, he says, which I am commanding you today will be on your heart. When Paul, when when Moses, well, they're not for they're not on Israel's heart now. That's the point. Um, in in Deuteronomy, what he says of Israel is they have a hard heart; they don't love the Lord their God. But when the Lord brings them out of death, out of exile, 
they will love the Lord their God. These things shall be upon your heart. This is what has been accomplished in the Messiah. We must learn to live it, the royal law of love, whereby we put on the death and the resurrection of the Messiah, the new law keeping.